Welcome to Violet Sessions. I'm Danielle Radoichin and I'm here with my co-host Claire Patak. We are really excited to share with you that today's show is one in a series that we are doing as part of Port Elliot Festival. In this episode, we're talking to Julia Samuel, a psychotherapist counsellor for paediatrics at London St. Mary's Hospital and founder patron of the Child Bereavement Trust. She has recently published her first book, Grief Works, Stories of Life, Death and Surviving. Here she is, talking to us on Violet Sessions. Do you know what fine in therapeutic speech stands for? What? Fucked up, insecure, neurotic and emotional. <laughs> so that brings us to our next guest. Yes. The, uh, the psycho, psychotherapist or psychoanalyst? Psychotherapist. Psychotherapist Julia Samuel, um, who was my psychotherapist for a time, um, but now she's too famous and so she doesn't have time. To I can't see be bothered. Me. Don't care anymore. She doesn't care oh, anymore. Did she just fix you? Yeah. You didn't need to go anymore. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm completely fixed. Never. And now I'm fine. <laughs> that really is a bad signal. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's fine. Um, no, but really, um, I did. I met you through through mutual friends. Um, well, they they sent me to you, um, my good friend Blanche Vaughn, um, and I think um, I'm so. It's such an, an interesting dynamic to have you on the couch, on my couch, for a change. I know. I feel extremely <laughs> uncomfortable. Even if it is with a big mic between your legs. <laughs> get straight to the point, which is that you've just written a book. Your first book, and maybe your only book, you, you say, but I don't believe that, um, and called Grief Works. And it's a series of case studies of, of your, maybe you should tell, tell us about it, tell us what the book's about. It's, well, it's, as it says on the tin, it's, it's different, um, grief is work, it's really hard work psychologically, um, and the book is a series of works of people's stories about loss, um, divided by their relationship with the person that died, so a partner, a parent, a sibling, a child, or facing their own death. Um, and it shows what often feels as abnormal is universally normal but also how unique everybody is and how their previous experiences their upbringing who they are and their previous losses really influence their capacity to grieve but what most people do with grief is try and avoid it most people don't want to feel the pain they will do almost anything to avoid the pain and how we heal in grief is by allowing ourselves to feel the pain so, I mean, that's my main message, is that people need to support themselves to find a way of expressing it. And it doesn't have to be by talking to a therapist. It can be by making a cake. Um, very therapeutic. It's very me. therapeutic and actually recipes in memory of someone that's died. So I often talk to people if their mum or their sister yes. or brother has died. You know, when they're coming up to the anniversary, is there something, was there a family recipe 
that they all love that they would make together. It's that's a so that's a really healing thing. Do you get asked about to make cakes for funerals, Claire? I have actually been asked that. It's not something people normally normally want to talk about, actually. And so normally, it's I think people are um, in our culture too confused about celebrating someone's life versus mourning a death at a at a funeral. You know, and I think in other cultures they might have a huge party. And maybe like a funeral can turn into a party here and then you have the cake and everything. But I think to order cakes for a funeral does not, not, doesn't come to mind uh, for, for a lot of people. It is still our last taboo. Mm. You know, the Victorians were really good at death. Queen mm. Victoria was the poster woman for death. What, and never you talked about sex. Oh, she, like stiff up a lip didn't type. she paint no, the, the, opposite. Whole, the whole city black, basically? She never went out <laughs> of her <laughs> widow's weeds. So it became fashionable to wear mourning clothes. Mm. So there were, in Regent Street alone, there were three warehouses where you could rent funeral, you know, mourning attire, whether it was black jewellery or clothes or capes or hats. And so grief was very much a sort of um, a fashionable signifier of who you were. And then the First World War, there was 700,000 military deaths. And none of them were buried at home. They were all buried, you know, where they died. And that everybody was grieving someone they loved, a brother, a, a father, a child. Yeah, everybody was touched by it. And that wiped out all our rituals of grieving. Why would it not have? Um, why would we not have been prepared for it? You know, because of because it was something that people were comfortable with. Why? why what was the reaction? Because do you the, think that happened? the trauma of it was so great. Yeah. There was a yeah. biological uh, kind of drive to survive. And there was no one available to listen or talk or express. They had to get on with life. I mean, there were... um, People did go back to France and and, um, Belgium, but very few numbers. Most people kind of grieved in silence, and that was the beginning of us not voicing it and um, remembering in silence, you know, that grief not having words. And I think that's still true. People find it very, very difficult to talk about. Um, and you also, because you set up the um, Child Bereavement Trust, which I believe is now Child Bereavement UK. And when I... <laughs> she's making a face, but don't be mod- <laughs> modest. Um, but I, when I mentioned to a few people that we were talking to you today, um, the first thing they said to me, I'm sure you know what I'm going to say, is why does she do that job? And do you get sort of frustrated with people constantly thinking that you must have had some great loss in your own life to have wanted to go into this line of work? I'm fine a patron. Um, I, yeah, people think it's a really odd job. I bumped into a friend here and this, they asked me what I was doing and I said I was doing a, a, a gig um, with Cathy and they, they said what was it about and I wanted to say it was about sex or dancing. <laughs> so even me, the great kind of drum bearer for death, find it hard to say. Um, but I, have, I mean, there are lots of reasons why I've done this. Some internal in my upbringing and some um, influences by experiences I've had. But I, I haven't had a child that's died, luckily. Touch wood. Yes, and you have four children. I've got four children. And grandchildren? And four, four grandchildren. <laughs> but I'm a very neurotic mother now, so I always think they're about to die. So, you know, when my daughters were pregnant, I was literally like... <gasps> so you're more of a neurotic grandmother than mother? Yeah. 
because when I when I first had them, I didn't really know that. I didn't think children died. I, I just thought that wasn't a thing anymore. You like were so most young when think. you had them. You were in your twenties. I was twenty-one 20. when I had my first child. Amazing. Um, <laughs> um, how did you manage to do I'm just amazed that you managed to have four children me too amazing. well first of all period yeah. how anyone can have four children yeah. <laughs> I was young doing one. I yeah, didn't know what young. I was doing yeah. ignorance is bliss but, it, but even when you, when you had them when you were young but then you still had to bring them all up and how did you manage to well not manage but how how did it work bringing up children and having doing all this work you've always worked I've always worked see, yeah I really like working. Mm. Um, I was never... I. The picture of me as a mother would be a cake-making, jam-making, stay-at-home, on the floor, doing Lego mother. That's the one I want to be, but that isn't really the mother I am or I was. And I want to be that kind of grandmother, and I'm not really that grandmother either. Occasionally I can do it. I, I love being with my children, but I love working. And I've always liked the structure and purpose of working. And that I was never going to stay at home all the time. Tell us about what it was like when you were in Paris, because I know you moved there when you were really young. Um, I think you just, had you just met your husband? Or <laughs> and then and I think... Uh, you, I you, lied you, to get my job, pretended I you, could speak you got French. A, you, was that a job, was that a job with Revlon? Revlon Cosmetics. Yes. And, um, but you, because I, I thought you know. This you, I, is not on the internet. Where did you get this stuff? We do, we, we do our research. We do our research. Um, and I got sacked. That's not on the internet. It will be now. Oh, is that a scoop? I love it. I think you have to. Yeah, you have to get sacked. I got life. sacked for putting salt of passage. instead of sugar. I was making coffee for the president of Revlon, Charles Revson, and my French was so terrible. I got muddled between Sol and Cell in the kitchen <laughs> and I put salt in all our coffee for the boardroom and they just couldn't, that was one step too far. I got sacked. But, but why did you feel this need to work? I think we're both quite sort of fascinated by that. Yeah, I mean, I was never so, expected to and work. And so I where never, did that, why did you feel I the need to work? I think it's because I'm the youngest and I was always rivalrous with my sibling rivalry. Honestly, yeah. it's, I think unconsciously, I was fighting with my sisters all the time, and I thought the only way I could ever win was by working. And so I always worked. I worked and in not school. And com- not competitive with your twin brother? I'm not, I find it, I'm not actively competitive with them, because we're very, very, all of yes, them were very, very different. That's Hugo Guinness. My twin, yeah. I'm friends with him on Instagram. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's very talented. I saw him yesterday, but we, he and I... I don't know if you'd agree with this. He does about two hours' work and has unbelievable success. I do like 20 and have low, slow, kind of long. But different kind of work, right? Is he an artist? He's an artist. And then he did his first script was um, for Grand Budapest Hotel and he got nominated for an Oscar. Yeah, so unfair. And so he, (laughs) so I'm a slogger that kind of pushes things uphill for years and I worked in the NHS for 25 years in a room without a window and Hugo kind of flounced around doing the odd picture and did really <laughs> I'm not competitive with him or anything <laughs> fantastic um, but the, the difference from when you were you know, working in Paris and putting salt in people's tea to finding your life's passion which 
came slightly later on. Um, what was it that triggered that? I know you said in the past that um, you went to some support groups um, with members of your family and that helped you realise that talking about your feelings can really help. Um, and then I think you moved on and started, you worked for a charity after that, but maybe tell us a bit about how that evolved. I think it was a combination of lots of things. It's very hard. I mean, if you talk to anyone who does um, kind of work helping others, it's nearly always about them, the kind of wounded healer. I don't think I was particularly wounded, but I think, I mean, my parents, my mother, by the time she was 25, her mother, her father, her sister and her brother had all died. And my father, his father and brother had died. So there were seven people in the family who died who they never talked about. There were these black and white photographs around the house. And we didn't know anything about them. I knew nothing. They were never mentioned. So I think we were kind of brought up in a very hidden grieving that neither of my parents voiced. So I think that influenced me. As a therapist, I would say that influenced me. I think I wanted to be seen and heard and known. And I think often you give to others what you most want for yourself. I think yes. if you talk to someone about like you making cakes, yes. if you look at the motivation, probably what you're doing is something about you. It isn't necessarily because you want to see someone chewing a cake. It does something <laughs> for you. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a satisfying satisfaction that I'm looking for. Um, yeah. Come on, it's more than that. <laughs> Back in the hot seat. <laughs> um, well, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think um, it's not just about baking a cake. I mean, it's it's about... For me, actually, the reason why I fell in love with baking was just because it was such an instant gratification. It was to have chaos into something beautiful and, and, and fixed and, you know, completed within an hour. Uh, it's very satisfying. So, yeah. So often is it... I mean, as a therapist, that would be, you know, your, if your internal world feels kind of unknown and yes. messy yes. and kind of unknowable, yes. putting sugar and flour... She's and good, everyone. She's good. Butter and all those extra eggs together yes. and finding it makes a beautiful cake, you kind of feel you can find some kind of, not perfection, but beauty. Beauty, Which is closure. often what you don't feel about yourself. Absolutely, yeah. So here I am baking still at 42. <laughs> What's the Very biggest, successfully. <laughs> Thank you. What's the biggest change you've noticed in your profession over the years? So I've been a therapist 27 years. Um, I think it is much more part of life now. I, don't, I mean, I think when people can't, I mean, I think people are very ignorant about grief and they don't, which is why I wrote the book, because I feel so angry that people don't know what's normal for them to feel, their friends don't know what's normal to say, and it's sort of like, fucking hell, you sh we should know this by now. It's not rocket science. Um, so that's what motivated me. And people often come, the first thing they say, am I going mad? That is what I'm feeling normal. So that hasn't progressed, but what has progressed is it's much more accepted. Although I still think there is a sense of shame that I should be okay, I shouldn't really need a therapist, I should manage on my own, that kind of thing, or get on with it. Do you think that's a British thing particularly? Funny enough, I do think it's global. I mean, I think, I mean, if you look at China, they never, they, that has a whole, they have no therapists in China. They Skype 
British therapists. Yeah. And that's as there's a middle class that's growing. The, it, some people's whole practice is, is Chinese needing therapy because it's a completely unknown quantity in China. I was pretty so. shocked when I moved here 12 years ago from California, though, how how many people sort of thought Snotty therapy. Oh, I know. Why? You know. <laughs> how many people needed well, it? What's wrong? Like, what's wrong? You know. And I'm like, well. I mean, a few things, like we all have things, but it's also just so normal, you know, you just, you work through with help, um, you know, so I think uh, the attitudes have changed a lot in, in sort of, from what I've seen, I think, um, I think a lot more people talk about it, I think it has, I've noticed it. And actually I'm beginning to see people who, I never saw people who are older, so I'm now seeing a woman who's about 75, which is very unusual, mm. and I'm seeing more men, but younger men. Men are, men are really bad at um, supporting themselves. So in my book, this, what the stats show is that men, if they have a partner that dies, they tend to get married. Men, the, the kind of expression is men replace and women mourn. Um, and men tend to get married within the first year, but the men that don't get married again or find a partner fare very badly. They get bad depression, they develop very bad habits. They're more suicidal, they get very lonely, they get very overweight. There's, there isn't a, someone there um, looking after looking them. After them. Mm. And women are much better, they got better, you know, they're good at talking to their friends. Men aren't that good at talking to their friends. No, they're not. <laughs> you know, they cry at a football match or a cricket match when yeah. their team loses. And that's when their child as well. dies. That's it's when they like, I'm not going to cry. Why do you think that's changing? Is it to do with David Beckham? That's what I've heard, that people, because he cries publicly, that, that helps men feel like they could cry. I do think role models make a difference. I mean, it feels a bit desperate that it has to be David Beckham crying. <laughs> but, I mean, I think it's small things that move the dial a little bit every time. Yeah. Um, um, I'd love to talk a little bit about the book, um, which I have to admit I've been listening to on audiobooks. That's so weird. Because <laughs> you should all know too that, I mean, it's, it's um, record, Julia's recorded it, um, which for me is wonderful because I love her voice. And so, um, but I know um, she was joking with me earlier that, um, you know, listening to your, it's always weird to listen to your own voice on podcasts. I listen back and I think, oh my God. But, um, but anyway, um, I listen to it when I'm driving and um, I'm so, I've been so taken with one particular thing in, in the book. So there are all these case studies and one of the things that you mention is, and I know this personally from coming to see you, that you have quite a few flights of stairs to get up to um, before you can sit down on your very comfortable chair and have a chat. And one of the things that you mentioned is how each person sort of reacts to or takes the challenge of the stairs. And I just wondered if you could kind of maybe share that with our listeners, about, kind of a little bit about what, what that is. I think it's... I mean, how somebody comes into a room, whether it's a friend or a therapist, tells you a lot if you observe them coming in and how they leave a room. You know, some people cut and run. Some people are very reluctant to come in. They put their head in front. Everybody, when they come up, talks about the stairs. And it's a kind of quite... A, it's a bit like saying... It's a sort of way of saying I'm really... This is. It's a way of saying I don't really want to come into the therapy and you make me walk the bloody stairs. <laughs> Um, and so they're kind of, it's a, but also it's a, it's a metaphor for them kind of climbing into themselves. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and so by the time they sit down and they get their breath, and then we can, I can focus on them and we kind of build a relationship. I think it's quite, it's a kind of fascinating part of it. It is fascinating, and I was so fascinated that it wasn't just me that had thought every time I come to you. Okay, the stairs. I don't want to be out of breath when I get to the top. You know, like the, all the things that for me were like, okay, I want to seem like I'm really fit. I don't want to be huffing and puffing. I want, you know. And Everybody then, has a thing. Exactly. So someone, some people stop so they're not puffing. Some people try and beat how fast they were last time. Yes. And so that they're quick. Yeah. Some people always complain. They come in, they say, I'm not going to talk about the stairs. And <laughs> talk about the stairs. <laughs> But then really they're talking about their own process yeah. too, aren't they? Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm not doing it as well, or it's more tiring, it's more painful. Mm. I don't want to be feeling this, I want to get over it. Give me a lift, you know. Help me. Put me in the lift and make it just, put me to sleep and I'll, you know, be better. And I think that is the thing with grief, is that you need endurance. Mm. You need psychic strength, kind of mm. psychological strength. And actually, you need physical fitness. It makes it how your body, you know, we feel it in our bodies, and how we feel in our bodies has a big impact on how we breathe. And people want fast track answers. They want an app that they can just zap, and everything is sorted. And grief really isn't like that. It's a kind of lifelong adjustment. If it's someone that you know, you, the level of your loss is the level of your love, and so. How you know if you really love the person that's died, you don't get over it. You have to find a way of living with it and accommodating a loss. Finding a way of living with it. You, I don't think it's about acceptance. I think it's about um, adjusting and rebooting—not rebooting, reconfiguring yourself, yourself, and yourself in the relation to the person that's died, and yourself in relation to everybody around you. It affects every single relationship. It changes you. It changes you. Oh. But it, the biggest one is your relationship with yourself. And what about what you do in your um, downtime? Because we know that you like exercise, kickboxing, I think. What was the other thing you said that Julia liked doing? Was you it? ride horses. Oh, riding. Is that right? I don't ride, don't, no. Don't. I have done, but I don't know. Not anymore. So I, because of a lot of what I do is sitting and very passive and being compassionate, I love the opposite. So I have a very strong, very fit kickboxing teacher I've had for 20 years who I swear at all the time and he's much taller than me and he cannot believe how much I want to hurt him and also but with my posh accent he loves it when I swear <laughs> yeah <laughs> she's actually re- quite naughty <laughs> and so there's a combination of you know bashing him shouting that does the opposite of what I do in my in my day job and I think whatever you're doing you need to kind of rebalance yourself you know, so if, you're, if your whole life is sport, you need to do something where you sit still and have time. And then I do stuff that I like walking, I like being in nature, and I watch funny films. I mean, everybody wants me to see things like By the Sea, or that one with Chris yeah. Affleck. All the things about death, that is the last thing in the world that I want to watch. I like watching Mamma Mia, stuff with happy endings. Yeah, <laughs> only the happy ending. Definitely. One of the things that, um, so I listen Am to... Am I not asking you anything? This no. is all about me. No, <laughs> yeah, all about okay. you, I'm afraid. <laughs> I mean, you can ask us something this if you want to. <laughs> yes, I want to ask you something. I mean, what's it like seeing me out of the therapy room? Is that strange? Because you've only ever seen me in that room having puffed up the stairs. 
That's true. Um, and when I saw you today for the first time in two years, um, I just felt like it was completely normal. And I don't know if that's because I just I had such a uh, I really had such a good experience in your at the top of your stairs. Thank you. <laughs> Um, and so seeing you was really, it was really joyful for me. And I think that, I don't know, I just feel, and I think probably because I know a few people that, that know you, um, it doesn't feel so enclosed in that room. But, um, but it is, it's, it's um, I don't know, I, I'm really glad that it's so easy. <laughs> it isn't always that easy. I mean, yeah, for some sure, people, I remind sure. them of the worst thing that happened in their life. Yeah, and so they course. see me and they burst into tears. Um, or they see me and they, they really don't want to speak to me. Um, I think for me, I'm most conscious of not abusing your sort of what you do professionally versus how um, you know we interact outside of the room when, when I'm not paying you. You know, it's like how do we navigate that where you're coming and you're um, a guest on our podcast. Um, thank you very much. Um, and also, um, I yeah, think boundaries really matter. I mean, so yeah, that you so and I would never be friends. I mean, that yeah. although we really like each other yeah. and. We exactly. might have done in a different, a different way, and yeah. if I hadn't been your therapist. Yeah. But I think it's holding the boundaries maintains the relationship we had inside mm. you because you hold it. You and I both mm. hold it internally. We mm. have a kind of body memory of it. Yeah. And you can go back to it, and yeah. I can go back to it. And if I mess that about by seeing you and having coffee or that alters it and I think it contaminates it yeah so as much as it's very kind of seductive um, I mean doing this feels like it's a, it's another piece of structure it's kind of set in time absolutely and, we, and it's work and we both know why yeah. we're doing it I'm yeah. doing it to promote my book yeah. you're doing it I don't, because you do podcasts yeah to promote uh, to, to, to um, enrich our podcast yeah you know yeah and so that that feels quite clear mm. Um, it's got a, it's got an outcome and it's got an end. Um, we have a cake question, but I'm kind of, I, I, it always seems so. Well, I'll ask it anyway. Um, I love cake. <laughs> okay, great. Well, then we'll ask it. I love food. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know. I mean, you've mentioned that in, um, in other interviews I've heard and things I've read um, that that you love food, and um, I wonder if you, because you're so busy, do you get the chance to cook much, and do you ever bake, and what is your favorite thing to bake? If you do. Oh my goodness, I wish I could say yes, and yeah. I, every week I make an amazing banana cake, but I don't. <laughs> That's the ideal me that makes scones and jam with my children. Yeah. The real me buys it all. I don't, I've, I've tried making banana cake cakes. just over Have here you? behind me. <laughs> I will definitely cafe. buy some and pretend I baked it. But I, um, I have actually failed in baking. I've tried baking cakes really quite often, and they never work. I am the worst bloody cook you could ever imagine. So I can do savory stuff, I just can't do baking. I think it's I'm too impatient. Yeah. I'm not patient either, but we'll talk about that another time. Okay. <laughs> I'm patient at work. It's strange. I'm very impatient outside work. Mm. All right. Well, Julia, thank you so much thank for coming so on the show. It was a real pleasure talking to you. Pleasure talking to you. Thanks, Karen. Thank you, Thank you so you much, Julia. <laughs> that was Julia Samuel on Violet Sessions. You can find previous episodes on the Violet Bakery website via iTunes or your favorite podcast app. You can also keep up with us on Instagram by following at Violet Sessions. The show is a co-production of InTalks With and Wargie Productions. Thanks for listening.
Bye.